I want to invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to the 49th Psalm, Psalm 49. The 49th Psalm, when you have that, I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the Word of God. The Bible says, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, the dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his father's who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You may be seated. The famous automaker Henry Ford, when he was building his factories, he asked the best electrician, the best electrical genius of his age, a a man by the name of Charlie Steinmetz, to build the generators for his factory. One day the generators came to a screeching halt, and the repairman that Henry Ford employed were unable to correct the problem. So Ford did what a man of intellect would do. He called the man who had built his generators. He called Steinmetz. And Steinmetz went and he tinkered around on the machines for a few hours. He threw the switch and the generators worked again, just like they had done before. It wasn't long after that that Ford got a bill for this work, $10,000. Now, that's a big bill today, but 100 years ago, that was definitely a large bill. Of course, Henry Ford, who was very conscious of his money, was upset about this, and he contacted Steinmetz, and he asked, why is this bill so high for such a short time of work? 
Simons told him, well, for me tinkering on those generators, I charged you $10. For me knowing where to tinker on those generators, I charged you $9,990. At that, Henry Ford paid the bill without any more questions. What Ford realized was that this man who he had hired to build these generators was the man who had the greatest wisdom about these generators. And therefore, when he called him, he could go and do something that the other workers could not do. See, Ford's workers could go and they could tinker on the generators all day. And they could bill him for doing that. He paid them as they messed around with the generators but didn't have the answer. But, but what changed was when he called the man who had built the generators, the man came and he had not only the ability to tinker on them, $10 worth apparently, but he had the wisdom to know what to do to fix the problem. I think a lot of times when we think about church and we think about our relationship with God, I, I think we, we know a lot of the things we should be doing. We, we know what to do. We know how to live better. We know when we are not living better. But, but the problem, I think, comes in a lack of knowledge and wisdom. See, for Henry Ford, that changed everything. And it turns out he didn't complain and understood how valuable it was. And so I think when it comes to life, we know the things that we've got to do, right? We've got to, we've got to eat and we've got to sleep. We've got to breathe air. We've got to try to keep ourselves somewhat healthy. We've got to take care of ourselves. We know the, the things that must be done, but I wonder sometimes if we really have the, the wisdom and knowledge that it takes to live. The psalm that we have here this morning is unique in some ways because it's not like many of the other psalms that you encounter as you go through this body of poetic literature. Most of the psalms are directed toward the glory of God. The condition of man in our sinfulness and our wickedness, but but the glory that God has. And the, the psalmist throughout this book, they, they give glory and honor to God. They, they explore His majesty. They use this, this wonderful, beautiful language to describe the God of all creation. But this psalm is different because the purpose of this psalm is not giving glory to God, but rather giving wisdom or providing wisdom to men. The authors of this psalm, we're told, are the, the sons of Korah who were worship leaders in the time of David. Their, their house, their lineage, their family, we can trace back further into the Old Testament. But, but they became, as we see here in the Psalms, these wonderful worship leaders. And so they, they write this psalm to provide wisdom to those who are listening. And they, they choose to do so, they choose to provide this wisdom in the form of a song. That's what this is. It's not simply a poem, but it is something that is sung. When we read it, we may see, well, this is very dark, and it is rather dark. I know last week I mentioned that the Psalms would be more cheery than Joe had been, and I, I think this is, relatively speaking. My wife informed me last night that I probably just had lied to you last week, and that was the best way to understand it. But I, I want to say that I, I don't believe that to be the case. Because when we look at this and we see this theme of death that is prevalent throughout, 
We have to understand the purpose of wisdom in the Bible. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowledge, wisdom, is how we begin to understand and know God. That, that word fear there in Proverbs, not to be afraid, but to have this, this reverent understanding of who God is. And so as these psalmists here, the sons of Korah, write for us this psalm, their goal is that we would increase in our knowledge and our wisdom. And so this morning, I want us to look at six imperatives from this psalm for living and dying well. Because I want to promise you that in the end of all things, when we come to the end of our life, the goal of of ours, our goal should be not the accumulation of wealth, which this psalmist clearly is against, but our goal when we come to the end of our life is that we have lived well and are therefore prepared to die well. And so these are simply six things that you must do to live and to die well. And we find them here in this psalm where we're offered this incredible wisdom. Six imperatives for living and dying well. The first we find in verses 1 through 4. To live and die well, you must listen to godly wisdom. If you want to be wise... You've got to listen to wisdom. They write, Hear this, all peoples, verse 1, Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. What, what riddle is he trying to solve? He's, he's trying to solve the greatest riddle of all, life and death. I mean, there is nothing more difficult to understand, right? Why are we here? For what purpose do we exist? And what happens when we die? Are there deeper and more difficult philosophical and theological questions that we can ask? He says, I want to try to solve this and I'm going to do it with, with a song. And he calls on all people, not just the people of God, but look, he calls on all people, all the inhabitants of the world, everyone, to listen to what he has to say because he wants to give them wisdom that is vital for living. And so this morning, I want to propose to you that if you want to live well and in turn die well eventually, you must be willing to listen to godly wisdom. So often we think we know everything. And we don't need to, to listen. You know, as you probably know, I have some students that I teach online, and I teach them in the area of pastoral theology. An area in which I am not the greatest expert, but an area in which I have been working for over a decade now, so I have some knowledge about that. And so the goal is that maybe I can share some of that knowledge. But I'm amazed at the number of my students who think they have it all figured out. 
seminary is really worthless to them. I mean, I don't know why they go. They should start their own. I mean, they know it all. They've got it all figured out. I've encountered people in the churches that I've served that when it comes to the Bible, think they, they've got it all. They know it all. Now, they don't, because I don't. And I get paid to study it all the time. I've spent years in seminary, and I've begun to even understand a little bit. We don't understand it all. And if we can accept that and then decide we want to know more, we have a chance to live well before God. Because when we we read this in verses 1 through 4, if our reaction is, well, we don't need to incline our ear, we don't need to listen to them because we we know it all already. We We just don't need to know that. Then we miss the point, right? Because... The, the Psalms, God's Word in general, has been written so that we can know God better. And until we know God better, we will not fear Him, we will not love Him better. If you find a person who has very little when it comes to godly wisdom, trust me, they have very little when it comes to their relationship with God. Unfortunately, as Baptists and as evangelicals, we have for too long put all of our emphasis on the moment when someone comes and receives Christ as Savior and Lord, when they, when they enter into a relationship with God. We put all the emphasis on that, and that's, that's great. We've got to put an emphasis on that because none of the rest of it happens if you don't have a relationship with God. But friends, once you have a relationship with God, God desires that you desire to know Him more fully. And that you rest in Him. And that you trust in Him. And that you learn about Him. Because if not, if you do not desire godly instruction and you do not desire to listen to godly wisdom, you will not live well. And that means when it comes time to leave this world, you will not die well. Because you've got to be ready to listen to godly wisdom. These these psalmists here, they want to provide that for their listeners. And that's what God wants for us. Let it never be said of us that we believe we know everything. That we know it all. Throughout this room, we all know different things. We all have different levels of knowledge when it comes to the things of God. But the reality is that none of us are above listening to godly wisdom. Wisdom. If you believe you are, then you have ceased to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because He is looking for disciples. People who are instructed by their Master. And that's what He wants to do for us. Is instruct us in godly wisdom. To live and die well, you must listen to godly wisdom. Wisdom. Second, verses 5 and 6, to live and die well, you must refuse to live in fear. Why, verse 5, should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches... 
in the time period when this was written, and I would say it's still very much the case today, those who were very wealthy believed themselves to be above everyone else and everything else. In the time that this was written, obviously the disparity is even more so than in our day. In our day, when people are quote-unquote poor, they have two cars and cable television and multiple cell phones in our country. And isn't it wonderful to think that our country is so great when it comes to our economic prowess that we can have those who are poor having the things that, that are considered the comforts of life? But if we go to many parts of the world, when someone is poor, that means that they eat once a day, that they do not have access to health care or clean drinking water. Many of them live on a dollar a day. I'm still trying to teach my children that in this country you can't buy something that costs a dollar with a dollar because of taxes. And yet my children, who have no job and no way of earning money, have a dollar. And some people work all day to earn one. And so the psalmist realizes that there are advantages to having wealth. But he encourages those who are listening who are apparently not wealthy, although he has included those who are poor and those who are rich in the call to listen. He says, do not be afraid because someone has this money and they come against you. They try to exploit you because you are poor. Do not live in fear because long term their money will not help them. We, if we want to live and die well, we must refuse to live in fear. Whatever that fear is, whether or not it's the fear of being exploited by the rich, something that I, I don't think we encounter the way others might do, but there are other things that cause us to live in fear. And if we want to live well, we've got to refuse to do that. And that's our choice. Oh, it's easy, I would say today, to live in fear. It's, it's easy to embrace fear. Turn on the television. Pick up the newspaper. What are they encouraging you to do? They're encouraging you to live in fear. Politicians encourage you to live in fear. Why? Because then you need them, right? If you live in fear, you need saving. You need someone to come and help you. How have the tyrants throughout history been able to take over and lead the countries that they have been in charge of? They have found people who are in fear, or they have made people fearful, and then they have offered to take care of those fears. But friends, as a Christian, a person who wants to live well before God and die well before God, we've got to refuse to live in fear. What have we to fear? What, what out there is for us to fear? If we are in Christ, if we are His children, if we understand that we have an eternity with Him ahead of us, 
What is there to fear? The stock market? Not really. Our government? No. What can they do? Can they destroy our bodies? Can they make it so to live is Christ and to die is gain? As Paul wrote, what are we afraid of? We think about the old hymn, Victory in Jesus. Isn't it already won? If you're unsure, turn to the back of the book. You can flip ahead. If you've not gotten that far in your reading, go to the last book and read what happens. We win. It's a decisive victory. The army of God goes in and wins without casualty or loss. So if that is the case, and we believe that is the case, then what have we to fear? The the psalmist asked that question, what have I to fear in time of trouble? What can be done to you that can undo what God has already done for you? I'm not aware of anything. There is no one who can come and rob you of your salvation. There is no one who can come and rob you of your joy. That's why you must refuse to live in fear. Because the only thing that can rob you of your joy is your own self giving into the call of the world to fear. Nothing else can do that. No one in Washington, no one in Raleigh, no one in Hollywood can come in and make you fear. The only way you can live in fear is if you decide to give in to that temptation. And to live well, we must refuse. We must listen to godly wisdom. We must refuse to live in fear. The third imperative, to live and to die well, verses 7 through 9, you must be ransomed by another. You must be ransomed by another. So ransomed, do you understand what this means? If someone is kidnapped, they're taken, they will call and and say we are demanding a ransom to be paid. And, and so an amount has to be paid so that that person can be bought back. It's something that I hope you will take very seriously should we be captured in El Salvador. That you would be more than willing to, to put together your collective fortunes to pay for my ransom. And I just, I just believe and trust that you'll do that. And I'm glad my glasses are not on so I can see you shaking your head that you would rather keep your money and see your pastor freed from a drug lord's captivity. If you want to live well, you have to be ransomed by another. Well, what is the the problem with that? Look what he says in verses 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another. Well, you're out of luck. I've just told you to live well. You must be ransomed by another. And the psalmist has just told you it is not possible. So the sermon is over and you all lose. Except that's not where it stops, correct? Because the psalmist is... And let me... Just bear with me, but he is is incorrect here. 
just, just follow. I've not blasphemed before you this morning. I try to avoid that if possible. He says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. He says you can't buy back your life. He says no matter how much money you've got, no matter how much fortune you've accumulated in this world, you can't buy your life back from God. That God has appointed you to die and then be judged harshly because of your sin. And it doesn't matter how much stuff you've got, you can't offer it to God and buy yourself back because it is costly. You say, well, preacher, that is not good. Because you've been telling me two points so far. I need to live and die well, and now I can't do this. And you're right. You cannot buy your life back. It doesn't matter how good you are. You may try day in and day out to be just the best person you can be and and love your spouse or love your children or love your parents or whatever it is. You try to be good. You try to do a good job. You try to be nice to people and hold the door for people and whatever. And I'm going to tell you, that is not good enough for God. What's nice and people around you like that, it is not good enough for God. Because He demands perfection. He demands perfection when you wake up. He demands perfection throughout the day. He demands perfection as you're going to sleep. He demands perfection in your actions. He demands perfection in your thoughts. See, I just sunk everybody else who was thinking, hey, my actions are pretty good. He demands perfection every moment of every day for your entire life. And so you're out of luck. The problem is there is no such thing as luck, and you're out of it. It's just messed up. You've, you've got no hope. But the good thing, and this is why I say we have to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, the good thing is the New Testament tells us in Mark 10.45 that Jesus came to be a, what? Ransom for many. So the psalmist writing here sees no hope. He sees nobody who can offer a ransom for themselves, and he is completely right. And so God sends Christ. And in Mark's Gospel, Mark is very clear to tell us that Christ came to give himself a ransom for many. And so while, friends, you cannot buy yourself out of, he says here, you can't buy yourself out of seeing the pit, the eternal separation from God. I want to tell you this morning that while he is right, The good news is you still need to be ransomed. And Christ has offered His life for you. Christ died in your place. God gave His Son and the price of His life was very costly. And if you want to live and die well, you must be ransomed by Christ. See, that's the problem with our moralistic living, you know, trying to, trying to live well, trying to do the right things. The, the reason that does not work is because our goodness is, is not good enough for God. But if you know Christ, if you have been saved 
by Christ. If you have turned from your sin, repented from your sin, and believed in the Gospel of Christ, the good news of what He has done, you have been ransomed by Him. And therefore, you are then able to live and to die well. But otherwise, you cannot live well. Oh, it's amazing sometimes the, the philanthropy of people in our world who are not believers. They give away large sums of money to feed starving children and they, they try to build orphanages and schools in other parts of the world and, and they do some amazing things. But it is not good enough for God. Because God demands perfection because He is perfect. And so it took His Son die. On the cross, in your place, paying this, this price that the psalmist is talking about here, it, it took that for you to be ransomed and therefore able to live and to die well. If you do not know Christ this morning, the rest of the message you can ignore except for this point. You're never going to be able to listen to godly wisdom because you have, you have no filter, you have no method of understanding. You will always live in fear because you are not prepared for life or death. And so this morning, if you do not know Christ, the, the imperative for you, the, the necessity for you, is to respond to the Gospel and be ransomed by Christ. But if you know Christ... You need to live as a person who has been ransomed. Because trust me, if the drug lords of El Salvador kidnapped me and held me, I would assume for a smaller amount of money because they're not going to get a large amount. They might as well just shoot me and get it over with because it's just not going to be a lot. But, but if they were to kidnap me, and let's say they held me for $100,000. And maybe some of you in this room, that's nothing. If so... Please call my wife when I'm kidnapped by the drug lords in El Salvador. But for me, that's an impossible amount of money. I mean, we just, it's not there. There's, there's no place to go get it. We don't have a house to do a second mortgage on. You know, there's nothing. But if someone were to step forward and offer me or offer my wife the $100,000 to have me ransomed, do you think when I got back here, that that guy wouldn't be my friend? If that guy called and said, hey, I need my yard cut? No problem. Hey, could you take my kids to soccer practice? Not a problem. You help me, I'm renovating my house? Not a problem. Why? Because he bought me out of death, right? He, he gave what I could not give, and he bought me out of death. Of course, I would want to spend the rest of my life on it. I need to pay this guy back. How much more has Christ ransomed you from? The Bible says here that you are unable to save yourself from an eternity separated from God in the pit of hell. And yet Christ reaches down and He buys you back. He, he reaches down and he, he buys you out of death and He buys you into life with His own blood. If you want to live and die well, you've got to be ransomed, but you need to live as someone who has been ransomed. Understanding the debt that you owe to Christ because of the purchase He has made of your life. Fourth, to live and die well, verse 10, 
you must understand that the world is not your home. Verse 10, for he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Think about this. These people who have died that he's talking about, not only were they wealthy, obviously extremely wealthy, but they have land, great amounts of land, and they have called it by their own name. They are so wealthy, they are so rich, that they have designated these places as being lands of their own. He said, and yet when they die, they do not get the world. They get a grave, and that's where they inhabit forever. They leave their wealth to others. I saw a picture on the internet the other day. It was a a hearse. You've probably seen this, a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. And, of course, the joke was, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. And so someone made a picture of a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. So you could no longer say, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. But I've done many funerals. And when you do the funeral of someone, you, they're either cremated, and their ashes are scattered somewhere. Or they're placed in a very ornate box, but a box nonetheless. And they're appointed a piece of ground, six foot, eight foot long, six foot or so deep, a few feet wide. And they pay for that. Uh, You know, unless they have a church that has a free cemetery, they, they pay for that. You pay for that plot. And you get a deed to it and you own it forever. Or somebody does. But the rest of your stuff goes to somebody else. It doesn't matter how much you've got. Steve Jobs, the creator of Apple, died just a few years ago. Battled cancer. Ridiculously wealthy. Created a a, a great line of products that that probably are scattered all throughout this room. A, A visionary in his field. One of the great visionaries of the last century. But he died. And he didn't take it with him. No longer could he enjoy it. No longer could he revel in it. No longer did his accomplishments matter, at least not for him. If we want to live well, we need to understand that we are not living for this world. Because this world is not our home. And so if you want to live well, you've got to live with eternity in mind. Not the things of this world. Because if you spend your entire life thinking about the things of this world, accumulating things for yourself, accumulating titles for yourself, and prestige for yourself, one day you're going to die and those things are going to be gone. And there's... They're not going to matter anymore if they were not eternal things. Friends, that's why we in this world need to concentrate on on winning people to Christ. We need to concentrate on our relationship with other people. We need to concentrate on the things of the kingdom of God. Because the rest of it's not going to matter. 
if you've built this wonderful house for yourself, one day it's going to belong to someone else or it's going to get knocked down or it's going to burn down or something. You think about the number of people a hundred years ago who had these huge farms, and what did they also have? A lot of kids. And so over time, those farms got split up among the kids, and they got split up among the kids. And now many of them are housing developments and things like this. They worked their whole life to accumulate this wonderful farm that they built for their family, and now it's, it's a third of an acre lot with oversized houses way too close to each other. This world is not our home. It's not your home if you're in Christ. It's not your final destination. It's not the place that you're going. It's not the place that you're working toward. And so if you want to live well, you've got to live with the mindset that this place is not your home. As a Christian, that should be getting easier for you every single day. There is less and less that should attract us to this world. God is blessing us with that if you want to just have my honest opinion about it. Not too long ago, the church was so popular and everybody went to church and everybody seemed to live moral lives and so people were really attracted to the things of this world. Not much to attract us to the world anymore if we are in Christ. Not much to be impressed with. Not much to get excited about. You think about the fights, the cultural fights that we're having right now. Think about, there, there are people, think about the cultural things that are going on in our world, and people are actually fighting about them. Not people are disgusted by them, but people are actually fighting about them. This world should not attract us as Christians. There's nothing here for us. There's nothing about this world that should um, cause us excitement but rather it should cause us grief and should remind us daily that our home is in heaven. Our home is with Christ and not here. And it will continue to get worse. And as it does, we will have one of two choices. We will become like the world or we will continue to remember that this world is not our home. If you want to live well, that's what you have to remember. Fifth, verse 13 to live and die well, you must rest in the knowledge of the Lord's deliverance. 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Talking about the verses before. So in other words, people who are confident in the things of this world, it's a foolish path, the, the psalmist says here. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Think about our culture. Is this not our culture right here? gain everything in this world, and, and what do people do? They come behind them applauding, right? Wow, that, that movie's even edgier than his last movie. Wow, that, that athlete is on his fourth or fifth wife. She's a model like all the rest. Let's applaud. We're getting to the point where we're applauding advances in science where people can go in and, and select what they want their baby to be like. Now, all of us that were born the normal way, which is all of us, isn't that a little bit offensive? Like, you think you can do better than me? 
I mean, didn't your pride come in there a little bit right there? They think they can do better than me? I don't think so. And that's applauded. We'll start cloning humans, and that's applauded. We have presidential candidates that think that a baby that is an hour from being born can be murdered, and that's okay. And people applaud that. How does our country not fall into hell this morning? I do not know. But it's applauded. We need laws to tell us which bathroom to go into. Really? But it's not just that. It's applauded. And that's what happens here. Not, not only, not only is, is there pride and arrogance saying, hey, I've got all this wealth, I've got this money, I can do whatever, I don't have to fear death, but then they come behind them and applaud. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, for their form shall be consumed in Sheol. Think about this, they're, they're just marching like dumb sheep into hell. Is that not what our culture is doing? Just marching right along into the abyss, applauding behind those who are leading them there? Is that not exactly what is happening? And friends, many who call themselves Christians have jumped in the line and are marching to their own deaths. He says, but God, which is one of the great turning point terms in all of Scripture, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Friends, we must rest in the knowledge of the Lord's deliverance. We see what is happening to our world. It's been happening since the psalmist was writing more than 2,000, nearly 3,000 years ago. That they were marching to their destruction. But he was resting in the fact that the Lord delivers His people. And if you want to live well, you must find your rest in the Lord's deliverance. Because when we see the things that are happening in our world, we see the destruction and the, moral, or the lack of morality in our world, it, it should break our hearts. But we remember in that that we have been delivered by the Lord, that He is delivering us from those things. That's why as Christians we must refuse them. We don't have to be ugly about it. We don't have to be nasty about it. We don't have to treat people made in the image of God poorly. None of that's required of us. But we must stand firm that we have been delivered by the Lord. Delivered by the Lord from the things of this world. And that's where we find our rest. That's where the psalmist finds our rest. He sees all of this, all of these people marching like sheep to their destruction. He says, but, but, but I realize that the Lord has delivered me. The Lord has delivered me from the power of death. The power of sin. The power of destruction. And He will receive me. 
See, we can get caught up in what the world's doing, but when we do so, we are not living well. And in turn, we will not die well. The Lord is the Lord of deliverance. Our God seeks to deliver us from the things of this world. To live and die well, you must rest in the knowledge of the Lord's deliverance. And then the sixth thing. Verses 16 through 19. To live and die well, you must be satisfied by what the Lord provides. To live and die well, you must be satisfied by what the Lord provides. So he says in verse 16, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For he dies. He will, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed... And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Think about this. There's a whole movement of people who call themselves preachers and call themselves Christians. And they base whether or not they are blessed on the amount of stuff that they have. Now, the amount of stuff that you have may signify that the Lord has blessed you. Don't miss that. There are some people who have been blessed with great material possessions, and they have been blessed by the Lord clearly, and they use the things that the Lord has given them for the Lord's work. So be clear about that. Just because you have a lot of stuff doesn't mean that that necessarily you, you have to do something wrong with it or you're doing something wrong to get it. But there's a whole movement of people, a whole generation of people who have it in their mind that because they have received a lot of stuff, that they have therefore been blessed by God. And if they don't have stuff, it's because God has not blessed them yet. Now again, go to some of the darkest places in the world, some of the places that are the poorest in the world, and you will find people who are having a much more vibrant relationship with Christ than we could ever imagine. They're completely and utterly in everything that they do sold out for the cause of Christ. And they have nothing. I mean, they have nothing. And so this prosperity gospel that's being proclaimed, which is no gospel at all, would tell those people if they would have more faith, they would be blessed. And that's malarkey. That's a really nice way to put what that is. The Bible never tells you or I that we are going to have great wealth in this world. It tells us quite the opposite. It tells us that our Savior had no place to lay His head. Why should we expect anything different? It tells us of great leaders in the church who were beaten and killed for their faith, who had no place to live. He says here, don't be afraid when people get rich and they think they're blessed because that's not how it works. There was a quote-unquote preacher not too long ago who needed a 60 or $70 million jet to do ministry better. Really? Do you know how many times you can fly in the back of an airplane next to the bathroom for $60 million?
Is he above flying in the back of the plane next to the bathroom? I'm not. I'm going to take the cheapest seat on the plane. I rode on a flight the other day, or it's been a few weeks ago now, and the lady I was sitting next to just didn't really seem excited that I was sitting next to her. And me, I forgot to take my, I had my, now I was wearing my sport coat. I mean, I was dressed, I don't know what it was, you know, whatever, but forgot to take my jacket off. I was the last one to board the plane. It was, it was cramped. So I rode from Columbia, South Carolina to Washington, D.C. without actually getting in the seat. Because she was so uncomfortable, apparently, but for whatever reason, that I just kept myself at an angle like this. I couldn't get lean my head over because the, the thing jutted out right here. I'm not telling you that to like humble myself, but I want to tell you that preacher is no better than I am. You're no better than I am, or he is, or anybody else in the world is. So why, why do you need a $60 million jet when you can fly commercial and sit in the back near the bathroom? Because if you're doing it for the glory and honor of God, for the sake of the gospel of Christ, what does it matter? Why do you have to go in comfort? To preach, I need my Bible and some notes. I don't need an entourage. I don't need a private jet. I don't need a limo to pick me up when I get there. I need my Bible and my notes. And if I wrote my notes in my Bible, I just need my Bible. We have got to get over this idea that somehow the amount of money that we have, the amount of stuff that we have is an indication of whether or not we have been blessed by God. The Bible here says quite the opposite. The one who thinks he is blessed because he has a lot of stuff, what happens? He dies. And the Bible says he goes to hell. Just to put it plainly at what it says. So what does that mean for us? It means that we, if we want to live and die well, must be satisfied with what the Lord provides. If He provides for us great wealth, then that has come with great responsibility. These presidential candidates releasing their tax returns and presidents releasing their tax returns, guess what? Some of them aren't very generous. Not very generous. We say, well, preacher, that doesn't matter. It matters to me. If I see somebody makes a million dollars, they better give a big chunk away. You don't need a million dollars to live on. You don't have to have it. If you live in downtown Manhattan, yeah, a million dollars, you're going to have a lot of cost of living stuff. Do you need to live in downtown Manhattan? If you make 20 or $30 million and you don't give a big chunk of it away, you're greedy. Guess what? There's some of our presidential candidates who are really greedy. Now, they're calling everybody else greedy, but they're really greedy. Amazing how that works, isn't it? Why? Because people love their money and love their wealth. As Christians, we've got to get over that. It's not necessary. Wouldn't it be great to know that we come to the end of our life, our children are provided for, and the rest of it we use for the kingdom of Christ? Not that we had hoarded it up. Friends, I've got a retirement plan. You've heard it before, I think. If not, I want to be clear with that. When my kids are gone out of college and I have no more responsibility for them, I'm leaving this country. I'm going to go spend the rest of my life somewhere else. I want to go reach the nations for the gospel. Friends, I would go now if it was practical to do with seven children. 
I, I love you guys, but, but, but friends, that's, that's, I would do it. You can get another preacher to come in here. You know, obviously, you won't be as good a preacher as I am, but you can get close. You can probably get somebody shorter than me. Some of you give an amen to that, and that's fine. I'm going to preach a little longer if you do, though, so just we're at, the, we're at the time limit, sixth point. But we need to have that mindset because we need to be satisfied in what God has provided us, not what the world tells us we need. Because, friends, the world wants you to have more so that you can become more dependent upon them. But we are dependent upon Christ. And he was a man who had no home, who had no job except to preach. And he went from town to town proclaiming the gospel. No place to lay his head. Are we satisfied with what the Lord has provided us? Because if not, if that's always your, 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 your focus, always the thing you're thinking about, I've I got to have more stuff, I've got to do more, I've got to have more money, guess what's going to happen? You're never going to live well for God because you're going to be focused on those things. To live well, you must be satisfied with what the Lord provides you. So I ask you this morning, how do you respond to the wisdom of this psalm? Because see, verse 20 sums it all up. He's used this phrase twice here, but he changes it a little bit in verse 20 to sum everything up. He says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. In other words, with our pride, which means we don't have an understanding of God, we die like a dog. That's basically what he says. We, we die like an animal that perishes. You think about that. I know a lot of people are attached to their pets. Some people really attached to their pets. Maybe some people overly attached to their pets. But my dogs, which I don't really like them that much anyways, but one of my dogs runs out on Highway 70 today and gets hit. The worst part for me is i got to dig it and hole and bury it. And some of my kids may cry, although they've been heartless toward pets in the past. But my kid runs out in the road and gets hit. It changes everything, right? I mean, it changes your life. It it increases your chances for depression. It increases your chances for divorce. It, it statistically, it just it ruins your life. He says, without with our pomp, thinking we're we've got it all together, but without understanding God, we we die like a dog. God didn't create us to be dogs. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. He, he created us to have dominion over all the earth. He created us in His image. And so when we lack the understanding of God, we make ourselves less than what God created us to be. And so with that knowledge, with the wisdom that comes in this psalm and throughout the Word of God, how do we respond to His wisdom? The psalmist understands that those who do not understand and have wisdom of God cannot live and will not die well. If we live in fear, or we live trusting this world, we die with no hope. 
But the person who is wise lives in light of eternity, lives in light of what is ahead. The wise person lives dependent upon God. So my question is, what do you do with the wisdom that this psalm has given you? Because that's the, the good news this morning, is this is not wisdom from Michael Pardue. Because my heart would be inclined to give you wisdom from the world. My, my, my heart would be inclined to tell you, you know, sometimes times are tough and you've you got to focus on, on making some money and taking care of your family. My, my wisdom would, would lead you in the wrong direction, but God has given us wisdom of how we should live well and therefore be prepared to die well because death, the, the time when we cease to be in this life, is when we enter into God's presence and we want to be prepared for that moment. And so how do you respond to the wisdom of this psalm? If you do not know Christ, the, the response is to come to Him this morning. To, to turn from your sin and follow after Christ. To, to, to give your life, surrender your life to Him. To, to be embraced by the man who has offered a ransom for your life. In a few moments when we pray and begin to sing, you can come. I want to share with you how to do that if you do not know Christ. But, but friends, most of you here know Him. You, you know Christ. So how do you respond to this wisdom that He has given? There is a way to live well in this fallen world. There is a way to die well in this fallen world. And the wisdom comes from God. How do you respond to God's wisdom this morning? How do you respond to the call to live and to die well? Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace and mercy that You have shown us in Christ. We thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your love. God, I just thank You that You have shown us tremendous grace. Grace that has passed anything. God, anything we could ever do. Anything we could ever earn. God, I thank you that you have given us a blueprint to live well. Because the world is telling us everything else. It's pulling us in every different direction. But God, you have called us to live well. You've called us to prepare our hearts for the eternity that is to come. God, we praise you for who you are. God, we praise you that you have called each one of us to live well. To live in light of eternity. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and love. And God, we pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. God has given us this great wisdom in his word. And the response is to embrace his wisdom and therefore live well. If you do not know Him, that is impossible without turning your life over to Christ. Would you respond to His message this morning as we sing?